0: We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the Atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, Christopher, we were able to get through the last uh, last series without getting too uh, too long. <laughs> I was worried we we're going to get into about two, the two-hour segments on uh, on it, and I know that you and Ben had some uh, quite some good things to say for the previous two episodes. And as we're looking at this one, I was like, "Hey, well, we could probably get through this quicker." And and <laughs> you're like, "No, probably
1: not." <laughs> well, it's it's me and you, and and there's actually a lot to talk about here. We didn't think so at first, but as we got to looking at it closer, there really is a lot to talk about here. Let's see, let's see how it goes. Yeah, there
0: really is. So we're, we're doing section 60 through 62 today. And th- these are some really interesting scriptures. These This is an interesting time because Joseph Smith has taken a few men in August of 1831, and they've, they've gone from Kirtland, Ohio, all the way down to Independence. And it's the first time that Joseph is going to see Independence. Right. And there's been a lot of revelation. There's been a lot of prophecy. They've had some, they have had some feedback, but they haven't seen it themselves. And you can definitely tell there's some expectations that they have on what this is going to be like when they get there. And it's really a moment of a lot of failed expectations because they start to realize that there's some land getting into the area. They're like, oh, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. But then as soon as they get into independence itself, they were kind of expecting something a little bit like Kirtland. You know, a little town, something that was kind of up and coming, you know, right off of, uh, you know, the, the Kirtland is right off the, the canal there. They can, they can do some uh, some work there. But <laughs> independence is not like that. <laughs> independence is not like that at all. What it turns out to be is it's a little trading post. It's a little trading post out in the middle of nowhere, right next to the frontier of Indian country. And the people there are completely uninterested in the gospel. And so you have a, only a handful of people that are there, unlike Kirtland, where you were able to baptize like half a congregation, and all of a sudden you had a whole new group of people. Independence was nothing like that and and so you had these the, the these ruffians that and joseph has Joseph was even used to having these kinds of ruffians, but these were even worse than the kind that he was used to. And so as they stepped off and they got out into Independence they started looking around and everyone is disappointed. Everyone is worried and has kind of taken it back because they were expecting this to be a bigger town, they were expecting it to be a little bit more hopeful as to their their projections about how they could grow it. Joseph is even asking God like are you, are you sure? <laughs> Are, are you sure this is the this is the place? And are you sure, God? Are you sure? Right, right? Did you make a mistake? You're Right? Or Maybe did I make a mistake? Mistake in what you were you were talking about? And uh, and and God comes back again in the previous sections and had said, yeah, this is this is the this is the place we're going to do this. This is where it's going to happen. Joseph's like, well, okay, let's do this thing. And so they start to scope out and they found a little place and some land that was better than than what they had initially seen, and then Joseph and his group end up going home, and back to Ohio. But at this point, there's a few men who hadn't planned on on staying. <laughs> they, they thought they were going to go down there like partridge, and all of a sudden the Lord gives them a revelation saying, no, you're going to stay here. You're going to stay here, and you are going to build Zion here. And so he has to write back to his wife and tell his wife that I was planning on coming home, but I am never coming back again. And you have to sell everything and come. And he writes back saying, we have to, you have to expect that there are going to be privations here that you, you, we've never experienced before that we're not accustomed to here and kind of setting the setting new expectations for people in Kirtland. And so it's really in this spirit of kind of destroyed expectations where Joseph and the group end up going back to Kirtland. They're a little bit resolved. They're trying to get their spirits back up, but there are people like Ezra Booth who are not getting on the new program. They see Joseph as kind of a fallen prophet. They're like, "Is this re- is this really the guy? Is it is this really what I think it w- it is? Right?
1: What kind of prophet, right?
0: Yeah, what kind of prophet <laughs> is this? Like, like you had all of these hopes and dreams and expectations, and and they were kind of reading into some of his hopes and, and aspirations, and and it seems to be that Joseph was may. I don't know if it's overselling the point, but maybe he had taken what the Lord had given him and had started to extrapolate beyond that without realizing what he was doing. Because when he got down there, they start pushing back on these revelations that he's given about, you know, is this what God told you? Did God not know it was like this here? You know, what is God truly trying to intend to do here? And so Joseph has to grapple with all this. He has to grapple with his own failed expectations. What he's trying to figure out. And so as they as they end up making their way back, they get on the Missouri. They're 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 canoeing back on the Missouri. They start coming into some contention, and some of the elders that are there, they just flat out stop rowing. Right? <laughs> they're like <laughs> they're throwing temper tantrums, and they're like, we're not even gonna row. And so Joseph he takes the lead. he's out there. He's rowing his his, his canoe and. Some of these people falling behind end up getting snagged in trees and in and in, in just branches that are they're hidden there underneath the, the water surface and nearly capsizing and, and people losing their lives there on the river. And the river was choppy that season anyway. And so they pull off and for the rest of the day, they're arguing and everyone's talking about you know, yelling at Joseph. And so most of the group are turning against Joseph and so this takes it in well into well into the night and and this is really kind of framing these con- this conversation because these chapters start to deal with this whole concept about the devil on the water or the adversary on the water and these narratives that have been framed and reframed and and told and retold and have kind of evolved over time from these experiences
1: well you know satan has dominion over the waters and the missionaries that's why the missionaries can't go swimming
0: You know, and that's the narrative. But you know, there's this is kind of the origin story of all of that. And so, what I think is interesting here is maybe not even so much a metaphysical or an an absolute reality that Satan is over the waters and and that all of us, you know, evil spirits are riding horseback over the waters, or and then God is taking over. Because it just the way that sections sixty and sixty one frame these things are really bizarre. You know, God blesses the water first, and then He curses the land. And now He blesses the land, and He curses the water. And you're like, and you're like, why? <laughs> what is going on here? Like, why is God? Why are we blessing and cursing one thing versus another? And how is this all going anyway? I thought we should kind of start with the with the end. But did you have anything before we jump into that? Did you have anything uh, that you wanted to bring up, Christopher?
1: Begin with the end in mind.
0: Yeah, begin with the end in mind. That was my thought. So in section sixty one. At the very end, there, the Lord says in verse 37, he said, And inasmuch as you have humbled yourselves before me, the blessings of the kingdom are yours. Gird up your loins and be watchful and sober, looking for the coming of the Son of Man, for he cometh in an hour you think not. Pray always that you enter not into temptation, that you may abide the day of his coming, whether in life or in death." Now, I think it's pretty interesting to abide the day of his coming, whether in life or in death. I think we should talk about that more in depth a little bit later. But right here in verse 37, when it says, Inasmuch as ye have humbled yourselves before me, the blessings of the kingdom are yours. You know, so this, you know, my, my little inside beatitude uh, sirens are going off when it talks about the blessings of the kingdom, right? All right. And the blessings of the kingdom, if you humble yourselves. So, uh, humility is is wrapped right into that conversation of being poor in spirit because humility is that letting go of the false self it's like because the false identity is that natural man it has framed connections and and has framed identities and has framed fellowship with the things of this world the things that hinder us the things that keep us back the stories about ourselves the stories about others the stories about the way the world operates that that limits us
1: and really has a hard time getting along with his, with, with his traveling companions, uh, whether on the, on the water or on the land, after a bad day, <laughs> or, or after, you know, after unmet expectations, reign supreme.
0: Yeah. It's a, you could see that these men on the water, they weren't troubling themselves. They weren't looking to see what they could change, how they could see God differently. It was all an external projection against Joseph. Joseph was the problem
1: or even the future possibilities of independence god might know something about independence they can't see no one can see yet yeah and he'd even
0: god had even mentioned that in the previous sections that you can't look with your natural eyes now to see what's going on but the eyes of god see these things yeah so yeah so that's explicitly there in the text and so we have this call at the very end to be humble to be humble and to receive the blessing of the kingdom so with that in mind, it's like going backwards, and and Ben is really good with this and bringing this up a lot, and he always he's always reminding me about it. But it's this idea that throughout the DNC, whenever we see this wrathful, vengeful, angry God a lot, and he comes out of the pages and he jumps out and he's like, surprise, all the time, and and you're like, wow.
1: Only we're not surprised.
0: Only we're not surprised anymore, right? And so you you see this wrathful, vengeful, angry God that comes out all the time, and it seems to be wrathful, vengeful, angry at the smallest little things and it's it's like you haven't confessed your sins i'm I'm angry, and my my wrath is kindled. This kind of strong language is we never really grapple with it. we never really are able to sit down and grapple with these understandings of of God's attitudes about how he swings so quickly from like. I love you, I support you, I'm merciful, I'm here for you everything, but yet I'm but you got to be really careful. And sometimes if we're not careful, it can really make God out to be. I got to be careful when I say this, but the same kind of narratives that we talk about in an abusive spouse.
1: And it's important that that we see God correctly. Well, for one, Joseph Smith mentioned this as the first principle of the gospel, right? To know uh, the true nature of God, right? And because we tend to to treat people the way we think God treats people and because, you know, we're justified to do it because that's the righteous way because that's God's way. And, you know, we tend to, it's interesting because we tend to do that after we've created first God in our own image. And then we then use that to justify us in treating people the way that God would treat people, which really came from us in the first place. So it's kind of circular.
0: Yeah. It, it, we have to really be careful. And that's the the beauty. And we brought this up at the very beginning of, uh, of come follow me with, the, the Doctrine and Covenants, this idea of God. And, and, and I love Richard Rohr. He's, he's one of my absolute favorites. And he talks about this idea of the, the three ways that we progress through seeing God. And in, he talks about it. And it's in his, uh, it's an audio book. He, and I, I listened to it on Scribd, but it's on the Sermon on the Mount. And and I forgot which chapter it is, but it's just a series of uh, lectures that he gave. But he goes, he walks through and it, it hit me so deeply because he was describing my own personal journey in seeing God. And I'm like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, that's me. And, and then he like gone to the next stage. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I did. And, and, and basically how it starts off is that there's three ways that he says that human beings, especially in the Christian tradition, we, that we view God. And the first one is that we see God as an, like a completely ambivalent God, a God that doesn't really want to be around us, who doesn't care, who is just off doing his own thing. And we're kind of like this side thought over here in the galaxy. And he's like, meh, he doesn't really care. And so our lives are just kind of an afterthought of, of whatever's going on, right? Whatever he. This
1: sounds like the Epicurean God. Right.
0: Yeah, I, I, th- I thought about that too when I listened to it the first time.
1: The deist God, right? the God of the, the founding fathers, the American founding fathers.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it, it very, like the, the Jeffersonian, if there's this God, right? So then we end up with the second notion of God. And because as Rohr says, we very seldom stay in this first stage of viewing God this way. The second stage though, is what's, it's what's been called the transactional God. And the transactional God is a God that is – he's difficult to get along with because he's hes difficult to trust. He loves you completely and wholly when and if
1: you are doing what he says. I was about to say he loves you completely and wholly except when he doesn't.
0: Right. And he doesn't when you're not doing what he says. Then he is angry, spiteful, vengeful, and punishing.
1: Right. Well, he's easily offended. He's
0: he's very easily offended. Right. And so there's this second view of God that we kind of project from ourselves where then at that point, our relationship with God becomes very quid pro quo. It's I do this, you do this. If I do this, you do this. And so it's an exchange. We're all we'll, We're always bartering with God. And we begin to set up constructs with God that if I, that if something bad is happening to me, it's because I did something bad. I did something bad and now God is punishing me for it. And so whenever we don't, and then so then we're trying, always trying to look at like, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? How, how am I making God so angry? Because I'm, I'm getting these bad, I'm getting these bad things. I'm getting these bad things in life. I'm getting punished and God must be punishing me. And this is such an unhelpful way to view God, right? Well, it's like you and I talk about a lot, Christopher. A lot of these things, a lot of these ways of viewing things are helpful until they're not. Right. And, And that's what I've really had to keep in mind a lot with my own discipleship and my own faith journey is that so many myths and so many narratives and so many stories and so many interpretations and so many ways of seeing God are helpful until they're not. And that was one of the biggest lessons I've had to learn in my life is to be able to have the fortitude and the recognition and the consciousness that i don't have to hold on to ideas about god just because they have at one point been meaningful in my life this is a this is this is a crazy crazy way of t- talking about god because in a lot of ways as a church culture we talk about holding on to our faith holding on to the idea of god that we had you know if from alma we have this thing of saying hey if you haven't had if you've ever experienced like that that rabbit that burning in your in your heart, if, you know that 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 conversion. Can you feel so now, right? And that, but that's not what we're talking about, you know. Riley and I went when uh, before you were uh, before you were so gracious to take over for Latter-day contemplation. Uh, Riley and I we talked a bunch about Meister Eckhart and about how back in the day, uh, centuries ago, he had this idea saying that we need to even. Be willing to give up our very idea of God. Be able to repent from even the very idea that we have of God.
1: Well, because even our idea of God can become an idol. We don't realize how pervasive our tendency toward idolatry is. Anything can be an idol. Even our idea of God can be an idol. We're looking for, you know, and it's like the, the, the children of Israel. They're looking for some kind of shape or form to put God in. And, and by the way, he's looking for a shape and for a form too, except he wants it to be his people. He wants him, He wants us to reflect his true nature. And so that's the journey that we're on. And that's the journey we're talking about, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's God making his image in, in us and bringing that out. And in, in a lot of ways, that's literally how we become like God, is we begin to realize that we get rid of Our image, trying to project it onto God's countenance, and we allow God to be able to shine forth and put his countenance on our image.
1: We have to purify our hearts, you know, like like the verse here that that deals with the jewels, right? Where it actually goes back to Malachi and the crucible, the, the refiner's fire, in which those characteristics that we have that aren't godly are burned away like dross, and we become pure and we reflect the imago Dei, the image of God in us.
0: Yeah, it, it, it is. It's the burning away of the false self into a recognition of what always has already been, right? Yeah. It, it, it That awakening of the recognition to who and what we are. We were literally made in the image of God. That is the center of who and what we are. Everything else in our lives.
1: And so to put that in the present tense, yes, we were made in the image of God, which means we are made in the image of God, so we are in the image of God.
0: Yeah, and everything else that's in our lives that we don't perceive is in the image of God. Is is that false self? And so it's an awakening to it's an awakening to that sense. So when we read in verse, for instance, in verse thirty one, and it says, "And in that place they shall lift up their voices unto God, and against that people, yea, unto Him whose anger is kindled against their wickedness, a people who are." well nigh ripened for destruction. You know, the question that I had when I was reading this is, what is real? What is the real? Are we talking, is this scripture talking about God's metaphysical reality, that God is literally an angry, vengeful, wrathful God? Or is this talking about the view that these people are existing in of how they're going to perceive God in this moment? So going back to the fact that these men are on the river, that that they are obviously operating in this kind of quid pro quo version of God. Now, and to go back and to complete that thought, this transactional view of God, this, that if I if I do X, God does Y, this this way of being and this way of transactionalism does find its home in scripture all over the place. In fact, this is the dominant narrative in scripture,
1: this, this whole quid pro quo. Can I just say something about destruction? You know, because... If we look at destruction in the New Testament, where we actually have, where the the language that we get even in the Doctrine and Covenants is coming from, it's coming, well, even from the Old Testament, right? It's coming from the Bible. It's coming from, as a matter of fact, it's coming from King James Bible, from Elizabethan English. This is, as I mentioned, I think last time, you know, Joseph is receiving revelation and he's having to put it in his own words of what he thinks scripture should sound like. And the word that's translated from the Greek destruction, apolia, it doesn't mean an annihilation of being. It means an annihilation of well-being. So it's not the destruction that, that you might think of when you think destruction, right? There's no annihilation. It's, it's not being that's annihilated, only well-being. So, so there is an annihilation, but not of being itself, only of well-being. It's a cutting off. And we, we cut ourselves off from God. We do this. God is there, knocking, right, on the door that we put in between God and, and ourselves. And all we have to do is open the door. And he'll come in. He's right there. I love the verse in the Quran that says that God is closer to us than our jugular vein. Oh, interesting. That's how close he is to us. And yet we don't perceive that, right? That's the reality. That's the metaphysical reality. Our perception, our own epistemology, is different. And so we've got to bring our perception in, in alignment with reality. We have to realize our own divine nature and our own relationship, our right relationship, which is what's meant by righteousness. Again, another one of these terms that that's just transacted a lot and and not and little understood, right? Much used, little understood a term that means being in right relationship. We have to align ourselves with God in that relationship in which he created us and which we've cut ourselves off from. Yeah, what you said
0: there, I think, has a lot of application to verses 19 and 20 in section 61. I, the Lord, have decreed, and the destroyer writeth upon the face thereof, and I revoke not the decree. I, the Lord, was angry with you yesterday, but today mine anger is turned away so this is this is a really interesting scripture to grapple with right where the Lord is seemingly decreeing he's speaking and the destroyer then is present God is the initiator of the destruction and he's coming forth on on the face and, and it looks like in context here it's the face of the water and he's not going to stop it but he says I was angry with you yesterday but but today I changed my mind today I'm not
1: you say riding on the water. Didn't you say earlier riding a horse on the water? Did you say that?
0: I said it just as a, a way of bringing up kind of an analogy of, of the devil out riding on the water. But uh, no, just on this one, it's the destroyer rideth. But there is no reference to the horse.
1: That's so interesting because I was reading and translating from a medieval Arabic text today. It's a Sufi text, and it deals with the it deals with the word that that means that at first glance it looks like it means a boat but it's actually, it can be translated as a steed, right? And so that caught my attention when you said that, but maybe there's nothing to that. Oh, interesting. Although I also was listening to a podcast by Rob Bell today in which if there's any time there's this thing that you think, well, I don't know why I brought that up. That's that's not a thing. That's the thing. (laughs) That's actually the thing. (laughs) That's what there is to talk about. (laughs) So what is this idea of Satan riding upon the waters, whether upon the boats that the that the men were in or upon a steed, whatever the case may be. Because we get this idea here that that the waters are cursed and so Satan has dominion over the waters. Well certainly Satan had dominion over the men who were riding on the boats on the water, right?
0: Yeah, but here it's talking about the destroyer. And, you know, as I was reading through this time, it it's not even really talking about Satan in this context. It's it's the destroyer. That's right. And so we're like, is this God sending the destroyer? Is, is it God out here being vengeful, wrathful, angry on the people and he's going to come out? He, but then he changed his mind. And and coming from what, how we've been talking about this, what stands out to me here is that from the perspective of these men on the boats, that the Lord is allowing these things to unfold. That this spirit that they've adopted, that this spirit that they're entering into, he, he's allowing this to happen. He's observing this to happen, right? There's another place here. He says that he he is suffering this to happen, and and in that kind of case, to suffer this to happen is also meaning to that I've, I'm observing this while it's happening.
1: Yeah, to suffer in this context really does mean observe. Now the the destroyer, at least again thinking of the Greek olathrates, is can be a poisonous serpent. So there could be a relationship there between that idea and the idea of. Of the serpent, at least
0: yeah when when we have here these men and this that their their feelings what what I'm seeing here is is this transactional concept of God. They were doing this, God did this. when in reality, when we stand in that transactional relationship, God doesn't ever come after us. It's not God coming after us to punish us, to be able to destroy us, to be able to kill us, to be able to, to, to bring bad things into our lives. When we have that kind of transactional relationship and view of God, it's really, really hard to truly and fully give over and commit to that kind of God because you never truly know when you're doing something that may make that God upset and punish you. If you can imagine a child who has a parent that actively and kind of randomly punishes at at various times and is is not just strict about the known rules. But then in this transactional way, there are times in our lives when we feel punished when we don't know what rule we've broken. And I've heard it from so many people throughout my life. It's that Obviously, I'm doing something wrong because otherwise God wouldn't be punishing me because of these bad things happening. I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but God is punishing me. Because what this frame of mindset does is it's not just about God has 10 rules, let's say, and I'm knowingly breaking one of these rules, or maybe I'm even ignorantly breaking one of these rules. It's that God is punishing me over rules I don't even know I'm breaking. And he's not coming out here to tell me about him. And I've prayed, and I've tried to come to God and to ask God and to figure out why i what rules I'm breaking, so I can change. And God never tells me.
1: This is like some of your experiences with Facebook and YouTube. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where you, where you've broken the rules and you don't know what they are. They don't even <laughs> tell you. Let's just say you broke the rules,
0: right? You get into Facebook. Or the U.S.
1: Channel. antitrust laws. Something else, Shiloh. The, the plot thickens here on this word that I mentioned, Olothrito. That's translated destroyer. It's actually what we call a hapax legomenon, which is a word that occurs only one time in the scriptures. And it's in 1 Corinthians 10. And the context sounds just like what was going on 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 those waters on that day that you mentioned in history in the context of this chapter. It reads, neither are you to grumble as some of them grumbled and perished by the destroyer. Isn't that what was going on? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting. That's 1 Corinthians 10:10. 10, 10. Yeah,
0: that is interesting because it really places the emphasis on the concept of the destroyer from the viewpoint of the person who's experiencing the the struggle, who's 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 experiencing the the seeming punishment. Exactly. And when you live in a construct where God punishes you because of things you do wrong, then when things go bad in life, it's God actively punishing you for something you didn't know you did.
1: Exactly. So
0: you, then you start scrambling for and it's it's almost impossible to have a truly intimate and a truly caring and compassionate and open and trusting relationship with a God like that? If there was a parent that was like that, that punished you for rules that you didn't even know you broke and then would never tell you what those rules were, how would you ever truly have trust in that parent?
1: Yeah. And we love, last time we talked about telling stories. We love to tell ourselves stories. My daughter's been playing, I Dreamed a Dream, From Les Mis on the piano, and you know, I was I was thinking about the lyrics, and that's it's the story that we tell ourselves that things are going wrong, and God is then is therefore punishing us, right? Uh, We're we're in this hell that God has put us in.
0: Yeah, and and the narrative is just be patient while I've put you there. I've put you in this hellish place for your own good, and these are very destructive narratives to be placed in.
1: Everything happens for a reason. Right. You and I have talked about that one for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So This is my favorite uh, version of it. Everything happens for a reason. Yeah, and sometimes that reason is you did something stupid. <laughs> and you're suffering the consequence. <laughs> but we try to make it something more than that. It's like you just did this thing and you hurt yourself because you were trying to I don't know. What if I like you you're trying to hammer something and you hit your thumb, you know, because you're not paying attention or whatever. (laughs) I think of the scene from Titanic. I just watched the other night with my kids where uh, the protagonist, the female protagonist is wielding an axe to cut off the the handcuffs of the male protagonist. And, you know, she just closes her eyes and swings the axe. And you think, boy, this could really go wrong. (laughs) Of course, it being a movie. She she hits the nail on the head.
0: You no, know, I so I've told the story before about my mission, um, I, I, and I'm always very leery about you know the mission stories, right? But in this particular case, you know, and, and I'll tell it again just briefly. But when I got out of my when I got out of my mission, I was in Ventura, California, and the I have no way of being able to know whether or not it was true or not, but it was supposedly we had more cars per cap per, per missionary than any other mission in North America or something like that.
1: This and is how rumors get started. This is
0: how rumors get started, right?
1: <laughs> what is it, church uh, folklore? Yeah.
0: yeah, total church, church fol- folklore. But for the point of our story, let's roll with it. So, but we also had very, very, very few accidents. And when I asked my companion, and I was also sharing an apartment with the uh, with his own leaders, and I asked his zone leaders, and I said, "Why do we have fewer accidents?" The answer that I got from each and every one of them in their own sphere, because because I asked them independently, was. Well, it's because we love president. And I I didn't get that. I didn't get the correlation. I'm like, you love the mission president, ergo you get in fewer accidents. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. And then I got to understand in the minute I really was there with the mission president and and his wife, and you could just feel the love that emanated from him to the missionaries. It, it, it was this being brought into this relationship and this 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 moment with, with him and his wife where it's not, I had no fear of letting them down. I knew that if I did something wrong, they would immediately love me. I knew there would be nothing I could do that would disappoint them. It wasn't about disappointing them. It was about loving them so much because they loved me so much that there was just this action from hope and joy that swelled because of the love. And that's what, that's that third stage that Richard Gore talks about. It's the moment we experience the true love of God when we complete, it. it's, and it likes, it completely shatters the worldview of the transactional. We begin to realize that we are, that we express ourselves and we enter into this relationship, keeping the commandments, as it were, not because of a quid pro quo understanding of God. Not because we think if we do this, God's going to do this. So it's, <sighs> It's in this way that we have this relationship with God because we are so in love with God because we have felt his love for us. God's love for us just soaks in and through us. Yeah. And then from there, that point, we realize we can never let God down.
1: And it flows forth from us, it
0: just emanates. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see how through through certain verses of scripture and these transactional verses of scripture, it's like, how do you inspire, how do you inspire that love of God to come into into us? And it's kind of like, well, as you said, things are helpful until they're not. Seeing God in certain ways is helpful until it's not. And I know so many friends who are making that transition from that transactional God to the what's called what's called a transformational God, a God that transforms your being. As opposed to just gives you treats in a transactional way. And that's the God, it's the transformational God that I've been looking for in the Doctrine and Covenants as I've been reading it through this time. Because in a lot of ways, just because, just where a lot of these people are at, these are frontier folk. These are people who are, you know, just highly inundated with this old type of Christianity, right? This Methodism, this. Uh, the the bat, you know, the Baptist sect that had come in—all of these are very. Methodism, by definition, <laughs> is transactional. It's it's systematic, right? It's like you you do these things and God does these things. Yes, and this is the idea that that permeates their understanding. And so you can see, God, this whole thing is a repentance process in bringing these people out into a new awareness of who and what God is. But of course, there's going to be ways that they talk about God being like everything that they've thought of before, as God is trying to roll them over into having experiences into who he really is and has always been.
1: And he's trying to to bring them closer to him and to bring them away from everybody else at the same time let's bring people in but let's bring all of you including those people that we bring in out west out away from everybody else where we can be in this right relationship with God and with each other where we can move forward from that from that old way of thinking whereas the new testament promises where everything can be new
0: yeah you know even in going back now going back to verse section 60 just following that that trail of thought. In verse 8, part of the question that's being asked to get these revelations is Joseph and and the people who were there with him, they want to know how they're supposed to travel back to Kirtland. So so they're asking, by, by which way do we do this? What comes out here is the fact that God is wanting them to preach the gospel all the way back. You know, Get back there and preach the gospel all, you know, all the way, and whatever you're doing, preach the gospel. And there were several who had stopped doing this. They weren't doing it.
1: I have a question about this, Shiloh. I have to admit these sections, I found these sections a little befuddling. I'm not ashamed to say. So in verse one, we read, Behold, thus saith the Lord unto the elders of this church who are to return, who are to return speedily to the land from whence they came. It sounds like the Lord wants them to return home speedily. And now you're saying they're to take their time and preach the gospel along the way. What am I missing?
0: Well, you know, so yeah, there, there's a little bit of it seeming, seeming contradiction throughout it because there's places where the Lord has says, make your way back quickly, but not with haste. Mm. Right? So it's, don't, don't just lollygag. Don't sit around pointlessly. Don't sit around as though you don't have a purpose in life. Make your way back right now. You have a focus of making your way back. But they ended up getting on the water in canoes and there's no preaching going on. Right. They, 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 they just take off so th- they're not stopping anywhere and so then at that point once they get out and they get on the land now the lord's like okay now you're going to just going to start going by the you know eat by the cities preaching by the cities you know joseph you and your your small group are going to go up to cincinnati the other group you're going to go into st louis you got to go preach the gospel now, preach the gospel on your way home now
1: okay so in other words th- this is about girding up your loins or in other words getting to work right yeah the image of girding up your loins that you take the the, I don't know what to call them. I mean, this is, you're you're wearing a, what's essentially a dress as a man, right? What What's it called, Shiloh? I can think of the, what the Arabs were today at the dishdasha, right? And so you just take that and so that you would be able to work, not only to fight, uh, It's it's true also of going into battle, right? But even just to work, you have to be able to hike that up and tuck it into the belt so that you can actually move around and so it's about getting to work girding up your loins is about if it's not about getting into battle or going into battle it's about getting to work
0: and that's really what i see these sections are about it's it's the getting to work they were in a state of despair they were in a state of distrust they were in a state where this is how they were questioning god they were questioning who and what god is they were one of the things i've learned about god is that god is far 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 more interested in us staying connected with him than he is about us making sure we absolutely get his nature perfectly right. That it's more about staying in the conversation with him than it is about making sure that we're absolutely right about what it is we're talking about.
1: And it's interesting because oftentimes we're so worried about our theology, right? That question of who and what God is and the the relationship between God and man, uh, between God and human beings that we we end up putting ourselves or taking ourselves out of right relationship with our fellow man, right? So there goes our righteousness. And that's that's ironic, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it really is.
1: We're, we're going to argue about how many body parts God has or what have you, right? And let that say whether his name is this or that or what he looks like or how many how many people he is. And let that divide us from each other and therefore from God.
0: Yeah. So with these men, with these men leaving, they were in despair. They were not in this conversation with God. They were not staying in the conversation. This is where they, you know, they're looking on falling out of the conversation. And sometimes tribu- that leads to tribulation. And sometimes tribulation, even when it's self-caused, is a motivating factor to trying to be able to kickstart and, and to re-engage that conversation back into and with God. Even if it's in a transactional way. Because if, if, that's, if that's where we're at, is in that transactional mindset, as I said, it's useful until it's not. And if that's where we're at, God's going to use that. He's going to speak to us in that language of our understanding. Right. And in speaking to us in the language of that understanding of where we're at with how we view him, then all of a sudden we can start to realize a lot about God, God's nature in speaking to us in our language you know, and so in section one, when it says that God speaks to us in our language and in our understanding, that doesn't just mean that He's speaking to us in English if I speak English, or in Chinese if I or Mandarin if I speak Mandarin, or German if I speak German. It means He's speaking to the language within the understanding I have within that language and that culture. the The concept that I have of God, He's going to meet me there, and He's going to lift me up, line upon line, precept upon precept.
1: Here a little, there a little.
0: Yeah. And it's not going to be this whole necessarily revolutionary moment where all of a sudden, even with Joseph Smith, who ends up seeing God the Father and Jesus Christ, and who kind of in that one miraculous visionary moment ends up kind of throwing out all of the traditional Trinitarian doctrine, as it were. Even even in that one moment, seeing an embodied God, while it does reveal a lot about the nature of God, does not reveal even a fraction of who and what God is. You know, as I've said it before. Just because I can tell you that my grandfather was a six-foot-two man, that he had had six toes, and that I have his blue eyes, that doesn't tell you anything about his love for me, about what it was like to be there and to sit on his lap, and for him to be my Superman. Yeah. That doesn't tell you anything of that relationship. Now, he didn't have six toes, but- those bodily characteristics, even though I shared his blue eyes, and I do, I really do share his blue eyes. I have his his blue eyes. I
1: don't know if we can trust you anymore. You told us he had six toes. <laughs> I fell for that, you know. And it's interesting too, because in in one of these verses in this week's reading, we actually have that God is calling us little children. We have to recognize that, right? We have to we have to see ourselves before God as little children, and our understanding is as is the understanding of little children. Yeah. It's here in 61 verse 36. We are little children and he's in our midst and he has not forsaken us. So be of good cheer.
0: Yeah, be of good cheer. Because it's it's verses like 36. This is why I said start at the end, right? It's for, it's verses like 36 here at the very end where our interpretation of God that had come before this in verse in verse 61. It's like this highly transactional, highly vengeful God. And all of a sudden I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to abandon you as a little child. It's like well there is a whole there's a whole lot of that that you seem to be doing it the, for these first few chapters but until we realize he's speaking to them in their language and it's almost like a, it's almost like he's pacifying them and softening their hearts and then at the very end he's like, by the way, I'm never going to leave you
1: yeah I love that you started where you did and and I think this is where we should end and I'm, I'm not saying we're ready to end it but this is where we should end right with Verse 36 of section 61. We'll have to remember to come back to it. Be of good cheer, little children, for I am in your midst, and I have not forsaken you. That just tastes so good.
0: A God that doesn't forsaken us, and a God that is loving, and a God that sees us as a little child, is not the same kind of God that's ever going to come out there and be... When my child was two years old and three years old, I was never disappointed in that child. Even on things where it's like my child... (laughs) I had one child in particular, I'm not going to rat him out which one it was, but for a little bit of time they would do diaper murals and I would go in there and it happened twice and it's that shock. It's that shock <laughs> when you come in of like the very, fir- the very the very first time this ends up happening, right? You can have like three kids or two kids or the first kid and and, and not all, not all my kids did it. Only one child did it.
1: It's one of those thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to.
0: That's right. And so you <laughs> walk in and you're like, so this just happened. And, and as a parent who's never experienced this before, I was like, huh, I was never disappointed with my child. I, my reaction was, I've never experienced this before. And this is new. But just the, just the idea of being disappointed in a little child. That has no context. Yeah. Who's, the child exists in wonder and awe and discovery.
1: Now, for parents who, who either haven't had this experience yet and don't want to, despite the, the temptation from Shiloh's story to actually experience this for yourself <laughs> or for those of you who have and, and have had it happen more than once, as Shiloh did, here's how you make sure it never happens or doesn't happen again. You put the onesie on backwards and you zip it up in the back.
0: <laughs> That's awesome.
1: It really is that simple.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I ended up just taking a little piece of duct tape and, and, and duct taping a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> there's a few ways to deal with this. Of course. But uh, just look, just looking at anyone who's had a child like that, you, you realize you're not, you're never disappointed in the child. Yes. there There's times when parents don't have energy. They don't have sleep that, you know, they've kind of at their, their end of the tether. But these are human emotions of from parents who are like this to their child. A An eternal, loving God doesn't have these same kinds of emotions that we're projecting onto it, right? I, I can't disappoint God because God already knows what I'm going to do. I, I, there's nothing I'm going to do from here, from all eternity to all eternity, anything that I have done or anything that I will do, that God doesn't already know. And so it's not like I wake up one morning and I sin and God's like, I really thought you were going to do it better today, Shiloh. <laughs> 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 That's just not the way this works. God already knew this was going to happen and and he even knows the whole trajectory of of where my eternity is going to go
1: and He's already told us that Shiloh's is not the only one. we're all sinners.
0: so it really comes down to me at just these these ideas about God that we have and seeing seeing God come down to the level of his children where they are at. To help them stay engaged in the conversation. The moment I recognized that the universe is a universally loving, kind, benevolent universe. That we live in a Christ-soaked world. Revolutionary changed the way that I saw God.
1: You know, I got an image from your description of a God down on one knee, talking to me face-to-face. Because that's what it would take for God to kneel. Now that's 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 a, that's an, an a good image isn't it you know i'm reminded of the song by u2 if you want to touch the sky you better learn how to kneel on your knees boy right but then here's an image of a god who kneels to talk to us face to face the way we do with our children we are his children
0: i used to teach the young men and it it was it was a common conversation when i would ask him I'm like, can you imagine that if Jesus were to walk in this door, how how would you picture his attitude would be like? And, and this was a question that they had never been asked before. And so there was always a lot of him hawing and like, uh, and, and they didn't know really how to describe it. But inevitably the words that would come about with, he'd be serious that he would come in. He would be very regal, very stoic. that He would be very, very collected. And he, and, and going back to that serious. And then I said, do you, would you imagine if Jesus were to come in here and if you were to play basketball, you know I had some kids who were basketball players. I said, "Would you ever imagine Jesus picking up a game of basketball with you?" Oh no, no, no!
1: Girding no. up his loins to play basketball. Right? <laughs> see, this is why we need more of risen and the chosen to give us a sense of of a Jesus that that would just that you just love to be around.
0: Yeah. Revolutionize the way you see God. Yeah. To realize that He is a God that would sit down next to you, and He does sit down next to us. I've I've learned through many experiences, both joyful and tragic, God always does sit there with us. He's always there with us.
1: That's when He's not carrying us, and and there's only one set of footprints in the sand, right? Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, and and to realize that God is interested in the things we are interested in. That if God, if Jesus were here, He would be having a conversation about what we are engaged in and what we are learning and he would come in and he would he would be involved in our lives.
1: Yeah, you know, it. we can think back to Jesus showing up to his disciples after his after his crucified on the road to a mouse. And he shows up, hey what's going on? What, you don't know what's going on? Were you a stranger? And they tell him and he's like, oh man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that sounds rough.
1: <laughs> Yeah. He starts quoting him from the scriptures. <laughs> My little children, you didn't get it. You never got it. <laughs> yeah, we thought it was a thing and yeah, and now its he's been crucified. It's not a thing anymore.
0: Well, Christopher, is there anything else that you, uh, you wanted to talk about here with 61?
1: Let's see. Are we going to talk about shaking the dust off our feet and ridding our garments of whatnot? If you want to. You know, there, there's just one thing about This whole idea of shaking the dust off our feet, that I just, I want to point out that this likely comes from the ancient customs of hospitality, whereby we've seen, you know, the idea of people's feet being washed. Strangers, travelers, sojourners, visitors, right? They're going to come with dust on their feet, and if we're good hosts, we're going to offer them water to wash their feet, or maybe even wash their feet for them, right? And so when, when the missionaries aren't taken in, when the disciples aren't taken in, when they've gone out without purse or script, and they're relying on and, and we can think of Book of Mormon stories too, right? Where where they're sent and somebody takes them in, right? But if that doesn't happen, then that ancient custom of hospitality, that sacred guest host relationship, which is so important, especially in that world, in a world where if you're a stranger, you're going to be suspect well if it weren't for this custom right for this idea that as long as a stranger is in my house i'm to protect that stranger and it's interesting it really is it's the it's the idea of do unto others as you would have them do unto you writ large as a as a cultural custom across a wide swath of of people and across a long period of time, and the place where I see where this is most alive and well today, in my experience, has been in the Arab world, where it's still very much a thing. And so, when you're when you're a visitor, you get this kind of treatment because this is how you would want to be treated if you would be a stranger in a strange land. And so, the idea of shaking the dust off your feet is you don't have water, perhaps, to to wash your feet because you didn't receive that hospitality, and so now you have to. Get the dust off your feet without the water, something like this. I just don't know that we should read into this any kind of cursing. Uh, There is a recognition that, that there hasn't been hospitality, that you haven't been received, but in a sense, you're just, you're just doing the best you can of, of, shaking the dust off your feet without having the water to, to wash yourself. It reminds me in the Islamic tradition of the idea that if there is not water to perform ablutions before prayer, the this, the uh, ritual cleansing that's done before prayer of washing, um, that it can be done with sand. If you're, in, if you're in, uh, a Bedouin in the desert and there's no water, you can actually do it with sand because it's symbolic anyway. A, a lot of washings and anointings, especially the, the ritualistic ones, are all symbolic. Even the baptism, right? Even baptism is a symbol of, of death and rebirth, of a new creature. So that's really all I wanted to say about that. Do you have anything to add?
0: You know, I really like that because yeah, in in section sixty verse fifteen, it talks about shaking off the dust of our feet against those who receive thee not, not in their present, but not in their presence, lest they they provoke them in secret, but in secret rather, and wash thy feet as a testimony against them in the day of judgment. And, yeah, I do. I think that has a lot of. Uh, you know, when you were talking about that and we were talking earlier, I think that has high significance into the way in kind of bringing that ancient custom into our, our current understandings and our current ways of being. Um I think we radically misunderstand this particular verse of scripture, and I think that's why we don't really do it anymore. It's not a common custom and tradition that is uh, is
1: done. Well, we've lost track of what it means right Mm -hmm. and you know and and the whole idea of hospitality too in some sense we've lost even even the manners that my grandmother had are not a part of custom today right of manners today but you know another example is of um the story of lot and and you know of, of sodom and gomorrah of sodom right in particular where people think that the sin of sodom is sodomy which, you know, is kind of circular logic, right? It, that's where we get the, 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 the word sodomy because we think that this is the interpretation of what happened in Sodom. When in reality, it's a, it's a lack of hospitality. That's the sin of Sodom. And even, even someone as conservative as, uh, Hugh Nibley has pointed this out. And when I say conservative and, and Hugh Nibley, I, I have to chuckle inside because this is the thing about conservatism is it's kind of a moving target, right? First of all, it's relative, so he, he would be conservative relative to less conservative interpreters of the scriptures. And and it's also a moving target in the sense that what was liberal then is conservative now. So I, I'll still call him conservative.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that sin of Sodom being the lack of hospitality, is uh, that's an important distinction. That's a really important distinction with a lot of other issues that, uh, that are going to come up. And I think we'll end up talking about later on in the DNC. So thank you for bringing that up. Okay. So just in closing, I I do. I think it's a great place to go back to in verse 36. Yes. And read it again.
1: And now, verily I say unto you, and what I say unto one, I say unto all, be of good cheer, little children, for I am in your midst, and I have not forsaken you.
0: Thank you for listening. Until next week, I'm Shiloh Logan.
1: And I'm Christopher Hurtado.